This evening we are in chapter 4 of the book of Ezra and we will be doing uh, session number 4 based on this chapter, the 24 verses that are there. Chuck Swindoll wrote a book many years ago entitled Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Back. And that title, if you notice, you know, would summarize the content of this chapter. Last week, we looked at how there was a new beginning. People have come back together. They have rebuilt the altar. There is rejoicing. You know, there is looking forward to all that was going to take place. You know. So they were all like, you know, forward, you know, they have come back from captivity. They have started the rebuilding. You know. There is great rejoicing. But you notice in this chapter, there were also those steps forward. Uh, the steps backward. The steps backward were primarily the opposition that came in. And as a result, if you notice the last verse of this uh, chapter says, work came to a standstill. <laughs> okay. Work came to a standstill. And we have a simple principle in this particular chapter that whenever we make a commitment to God, be prepared to face the enemy's unrelenting attack to set us back. I've taken a decision to follow after Christ. That's the time the enemy is going to start working. So far he was not working. Or you may say, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, I had gone back. Now I'm coming back. I want to make a new beginning, a fresh start. And you want to yield the different areas of your lives to God. Now there is a fresh recommitment. Good. But be careful again. Be watchful. The enemy does not like that. As long as a, you know, a person is lukewarm or a person is complacent or a person thinks he's make, made a, a commitment when he's not really made a commitment, Satan will not really trouble him anymore. But when you notice a person is on fire for God, wanting to change, wanting to do that which God has created him for, the enemy will never really keep quiet. So that is the basic uh, thought in this particular chapter. But let's look at the historical background for this chapter, because there's a lot of uh, history that are in, a, in a different levels, if you were to say. If you just read it in one without knowing the, you know, the names and the uh, you know, history that is mentioned there, it may be a little confusing. Okay. So first, the first five verses continue with what we saw in chapter 3, that of rebuilding the temple and re-establishing the worship. And it is at this point that opposition started. Okay? The events that are taking place are in the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, which was 536 to 530 BC, right at the beginning of his reign. The temple was finally finished in 520 BC, during the reign of King Cambyses. Okay? Now, from verse 6 onwards, there's a jump. There's a jump of over 40 years to the reign of King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, who reigned in 486 to 465 BC, who was the husband of Queen Esther. So evidently, there had been some attempts at rebuilding the wall and the city of Jerusalem you know, was beginning to take place, and then again, back again, there was stoppage of work. Then verse 7, 
moves several years, maybe well over a decade, to the reign of King Artaxerxes, who killed his brother Xerxes in order to ascend the throne of Persia. Okay. He was the king served by Nehemiah and also the king who gave the decree for Ezra and the others to return to Jerusalem to re-establish worship in the temple. So while Nehemiah <coughs> was part of the royal household, <coughs> the scripture tells us that word came that the building of the wall had not only stopped, but what had taken place was that it was lying in ruins. And that's what we read in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 2. And the rest of the books from here about Ezra and Nehemiah revealed the opposition that was there in rebuilding the temple, the wall, and the city in order to re-establish worship in Jerusalem. And verse 24 actually picks, uh, picks up from where verse 5 left off. In other words, from verse uh, 6 onwards till verse 23 is like you know, a glimpse into the future. You know? This is what was going to happen in the future. In other words, the, the reason why the writer puts all these events into focus is to help us to understand, hey, opposition was not only now in the beginning, opposition continued, continued on, continued on for a long period of time, okay? And then in verse 24, he comes back and says, okay, this is the reason work was stopped here, but that opposition was also going to continue further, work was also going to stop further. So, the whole focus of this chapter is, when you and I begin to take that step in obedience, there is bound to be opposition, okay? There is bound to be opposition. Do not expect that life will go smoothly because you have made a commitment to yield yourself totally to God. You know, Satan is not going to be happy. So be prepared for that. That is what this chapter is going to teach us. So let's look at, you know, what happens here. First of all, we find there's a group of people who come along and deceive them by saying, hey, we want to work together with you. We want to work together with you. Look at you now what verse 1 says. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, okay, what do they do? They approach Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers of the households and said, hey, let us work with you. Now, why is that a sly approach? Okay. Now, who were these people? These people were individuals who were left in the land. Individuals who had intermarried, if you were to say, with the locals. You know. And this was the group which was the beginning of the Samaritans. You know. Individuals who said they were real Jews, but they believed in only the first five books, you know, the Torah. That is what they only believed in. Their practices were different. And if you notice the Samaritans, you know, which had the beginnings over here later on in Jesus' time also, the Jews and the Samaritans had no dealings with one another. So when you know, Zerubbabel, you know, they approached him and said, hey, look here, we want to work together with you. Okay. It seemed as if they were interested in helping. Okay. It seemed as if they were interested in helping, but that was a 
deception, a deception that offered cooperation that really would have led to compromising what they really believed in. And that is something that we need to be careful. Satan never really comes all out and says, hey, look here, you know, this is poison, drink it. No, no. No, he will try to deceive. He will give you poison in a, in a bottle, you know, with in a, a wrapper that will say maybe honey, you know. So people say that's good, isn't it? You know? So he's a, a, a deceiver, a sly person who would not really tell you the truth but make it appear as if, you know, it is the truth. So he comes and they approach Zerubbabel and the heads of the households and they have this seductive appeal. They say, we want to help you, okay? We want to build with you, okay? Now, it comes along like that, okay? A person who's not a believer, okay? A person who's not a Christian and he comes along and says, look, we are all believers, isn't it? We all say the name of Christ, you know? Let's work together. But that person's belief you know, in what he says, he believes in Jesus and salvation is totally different. And that is what the cult groups do today, isn't it? That's a sly approach. Hey, you're a Christian, I'm also a Christian. So for a person who doesn't know anything about Christianity because they have not really studied God's word, they may say, hey, because this person uses the name of Jesus, he or she is also a Christian. And then the seductive appeal comes in together to say, hey, we are all in the same boat, we are all in one body, we all have to worship together. And that may sound very, very good to the ears, you know. But look at what they are further saying in deception, you know. They say, for we like you seek your God, okay. It is like, you know, moving from that, you know, one deceptive statement they are saying, into very seamlessly moving into the aspiration to say, we are all seeking the same God, not only the same God, but we are seeking your God, okay? Or they are saying, hey, you know, let's work together so that we can also come to know him, you know? Now that, for a lot of people may say, hey, that's good. By our, my contact with this group, they would come to know God. Now, is that a good approach, you know? A person who uh, 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 interacts you know, with the cult groups and says, by my virtue of my interacting with them, contacting them, spending time with them, what will happen is, here's a group that really wants to know God. You know? Chances are, instead of you know, they knowing God, you may also get sidetracked away. And then in order to uh, prove they are what is... You know, what they are saying, you know, is real. What do they say? They say, we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esar Hadan, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. It's a shameless argument, you know. What is the argument? They are saying, you are worshipping God? Yes, same God we are worshipping. You are sacrificing to God? Same God we are also sacrificing. But what was that? Was that the truth? No. These guys were also worshipping idols because they had been... You know, left there, they had interacted with all the locals. They had, you know, uh, also been worshipping those idols that were there. You know. So, really trying to do is to put the wool over the eyes of these individuals. They were there thought, we can fool them. They've just come from Babylon. They don't know anything. You know, we have been here. And that's what Satan often would try to do. If we do not know the truth, 
he will try to beguile us, deceive us, you know, by all sorts of things, you know, so that we would cooperate with him. And by so cooperating, unknowingly, we walk into his trap. Be careful. Needs to go to these guys, Zerubbabel and the others, you know. What did they have? They had a discernment, okay? They had a discernment which reinforced the conviction that we must be individuals who are separated, okay? Separated. So it says in you know, verse 3, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers of households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. If you just take it as just those words on that page, you may say, hey, what a rude statement to make. Here were these guys who were so keen on working together. Here were these guys who were also worshipping the same God. Here were these guys who were also wanting to worship you know, the same God. And this guy, this leader, comes and says, we have nothing to do with you. What a harsh statement you know, to make. But no, the leaders saw through their subtlety, saw through their subtlety, and they emphasized that if we need to be individuals who are strong and pure without any compromise, don't put your hand into the fire and find out how long you have to keep it there before it gets burned. Infiltration is a danger for us today. We may be pressured by unbelieving relatives, colleagues, we may be pressured by individuals who call themselves Christians and say, we are also believing in the same God, why should he be so narrow-minded? You know, we may be tempted you know, by other friends who would want to pull us down. But if you are weak and not discerning, what will happen is you will begin to compromise. Doctrinally erring friends will try to get you to doubt what you believe. This is why, this is why the scripture tells us, be careful with whom you interact. Be careful who your friends are. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20 says, He that walks with the wise shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed, shall be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. So, be wise, be wise, don't compromise, okay? Stand together rather than standing together with the other group, the opposition group. Now, why did Zerubbabel and the leaders and I take this decision? How did they show discernment? Two rationales for this. Number one, in contrast to their neighbor's claim, the Jewish leaders believed that they did not worship the same God. There was no basis for cooperation. That's the first thing. They were very clear. You guys are saying you're worshipping the same God, but it is not true because you're worshipping other idols. You have a synchristic worship. You have a pluralistic worship. You know? That is not true. You know? And as a result, we are not going to have any cooperation with you. Today, which speaks about how oh, we need to be tolerant. We are living in a world today where there are so many groups today, all under the name brand of Christian, all under the name, name brand of we all believe in Jesus. But their basic doctrines itself may be so far removed from the scriptures. 
So we must show discernment to make sure that we don't compromise and are led astray. And how can we make sure we have discernment? It is only when we know God's word, isn't it? Now, these Jewish leaders knew who these people were. These Jewish leaders knew what their practices were. And as a result, because they knew what God's word said about genuine worship, they said, hey, you're not worshiping the true God in the right manner. So in these days, especially in the last days, when the Bible tells us that you know, the love of many will grow cold, there will be many who will be led astray, we must be individuals who have discernment. We must be individuals who are willing to stand together in the truth of God's word rather than water the truth of God's word and in order to have unity. It is better to be separated and have unity in the genuineness of the word rather than saying for the sake of unity, we have compromised the truth. Secondly, a literal interpretation of the decree of Cyrus would indicate that authorization to rebuild the temple was granted only to the Jews who returned from Babylon. Okay? So it was not given to anybody and everybody. You know? Permission was given to the Jews who came back from Babylon to say, hey, you can go back and you can go back and help rebuild. Okay? So permission was given to these people to build, not anybody. So both these points naturally lead to the conclusion that their neighbors could not be allowed to join in the rebuilding project. Now we are living in that age of what people will say, we must be tolerant. We are living in an age which people will say, oh, after all, we all believe in one God, isn't it? No, no, we all don't believe in one God. No, no, there is one, only one God and there is only one way to the Father. There is only one way. A person cannot say that we are all one God, so every road will lead over there. Let's work together for peace and harmony. No, no, no. That building of peace and harmony would never come unless it is built on the genuineness of God's word, which says there is only one way to God the Father. Fifthly, let's look at the tactics that they use. Familiar tactics, okay, familiar tactics, which was used then, you know, but is also used by, you know, Satan even today. The first one is discouragement. <laughs> the scripture tells us, then the people of the land, that is the Samaritans, discouraged the people of Judah. <clears throat> and one of Satan's strategies is, you know, discouragement, discouragement. C.S. Lewis wrote a very interesting book called Screwtape Letters, where an older demon is teaching one of his apprentices of how he can trap you know, the Christians. And this is what he writes there. He says, have you tried discouragement? Because it always works. It always works. And Satan you know, is uh, a master in discouraging people. It may be like, okay, I've taken a decision to follow after God. And maybe you have, you know, uh, fallen into some sin, you know, or, you know, you thought you will have the victory now forever, but again, there is, you know, been a defeat. So Satan will come and say, hey, you know, you thought it was going to work. It's not going to work, you know, discourage you. Or when you think as a church, you're going to work together, few people will try to divide the group and split it all up, you know. And Satan will come and say, hey, do you think you know, people can ever work together? Not possible. 
different types of discouragements. Or you may come and say, do you think God loves you after so many times you have gone away from him? It's not going to work. God does not love you. There is a limit to his love. Discouragement. Okay, And that's what he did. And purpose of discouragement you know, is always to make you doubt. It's always to make you stop what you are doing in your progress steps you know, and to fall back. And discouragement always will lead to fear will always lead to fear. That's why the second thing that they did, that another you know, second tactic is intimidation. And it says that it, they frightened them from building. They frightened them from building. You know. If discouragement did not work, you know, <laughs> if that did not put fear into their minds, you know, then they decided to put some more fear into their minds by disinformation that they spread around. Both these, you know, first point, the third point, which is disinformation, in a center around this, you know, center portion of wanting to intimidate the people. And that is what Satan tries to do. He tries to intimidate us, put fear tactics into us about the future, either by discouragement, if that's not working, then he'll gather people together to pass on wrong information about us, you know, so that, you know, they would be, you know, force us in a way to be discouraged. After all that I'm doing, look at what these guys are saying. Look at what this person is, you know, telling about me. All wrong information passing around. My name is at stake. My reputation is at stake. And that's what they did. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the end of Darius, king of Persia. What do you mean by they hired counselors against them? Basically, in today's terminology, it would mean they bribed people who would you know, come against them. These Persian officials were bribed to frustrate the plan of these people who were building. Now, they say bribery was a practice well known in Persian times, okay, not just in that times, even in today's times, you know, people think that they can buy people, they can bribe people to say the wrong thing, to pass on wrong information, to pull a person down so that the person will get frustrated. And I'm sure you would know of many cases of individuals who were started off well took that stand, but because of all this opposition, which was not genuine, which was not true, you know, all this you know, information, wrong information that they spread about them, you know, they got so frustrated and said, what's the point of breaking my head trying to do things for God? And they dropped out, they got discouraged. So the same familiar tactics they are doing here. They bought professional help, if you were to say, you know, to make sure that these guys do not rebuild the temple. And this happened for how long? It says, all the days of Cyrus till the reign of Darius, king of Persia. For around 16 years, the pressure was kept up. Pressure was kept up. Pressure was kept up. For a moment, are you going through any pressures because of your stand? And you're saying, how long will these pressures go on? God. I said yes to you, I wanted to walk after you, but these pressures are so much. You know? The people around, 
they are putting so much of pressure. They are using, you know, their power machinery to put me down. What can I do? What did these guys do? 16 years, they continued to wait and wait and wait, trusting in God. Yes, work came to a standstill, but you know, it did definitely pick up later on, you know, isn't it? So a pressure, a discouragement can stop the work. And this is the sixth point. The enemies of God can achieve temporary victories. <laughs> temporary victories. From verse 6 to 23, <laughs> that's what we in a read. It appears as if they've got the victory. Work has stopped now. You know. Maybe you are living in that time now. You're not living in the time in which the victory has happened, but the victory is, you know, seemingly has come to the enemy. The enemy is successful. What happens? over here. Look at the historical time frame of the composition of this letter. The complaint, if you notice, you know, originated in the reign of Ahasuerus. Verse 6 says, now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So this is the complaint that was written in the days of Ahasuerus. Okay, so in the space from verses 5 to 7, We've jumped ahead in a, around 100 years. We've gone from 537 to 520. You know, that would not be 100 years, okay? You know, at least in a 16 years over there. So we've gone to the reign of Xerxes, and now we've gone to the reign of Artaxerxes. We have this initial 16 years, and then we also have the next king that was there in Persia, okay? So in verse 5, what is being brought to a halt is the rebuilding of the temple, okay? It's the rebuilding of the temple. Now, that temple was actually built again. But in verse 7, and following that, what is brought to a halt is not the rebuilding of the temple. It's the rebuilding of the city and its walls, okay? So rebuilding of the you know, temple was stopped 16 years. Then it was built, okay, but the walls are still lying in, in ruins. And that is what the, you know, the next portion of, you know, around 100 years gap over there comes in, okay. So this is where Nehemiah then steps in about rebuilding the walls of the city. So that's where all those names are mentioned, the historical figures composing the letter. Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, you know, King Artaxerxes is mentioned, and all these names are mentioned in order to help us to understand the context of this particular letter, which were the kings at that time. So, was this in the period of the rebuilding of the temple? Was this in the period of the rebuilding of the temple walls? You know, which period was this? All these names, historical names are mentioned in order to help us to understand the background historically. Now look at the content of the letter. Once you understand that, hey, it took a long time. It was not just in a one day, the next day. You know, it would be so good, isn't it? One day opposition, next day they all agreed. No, no, it takes a long time. And this is where you can get, you know, you can grow weary. If the opposition was only for one day, one year, you know, you may say, okay, no problem, next day things will be better. And that's the hope all the time, isn't it? 
But year after year, year after year, year after year, things are, you know, the same. Then people get frustrated. It's like when the first wave came in, okay, you know, second wave came in, okay. Now people will say, how long will all these waves keep coming in? You know, will things improve at all? What is God doing about it? And a person can get discouraged and stop growing or stop walking with God. So the content of this letter, primarily there is an accusation. Verse 12 gives us the accusation. It says, now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundation. Okay, So this is the accusation. Artaxerxes was the successor of Ahasuerus or Xerxes and he ruled the Persian Empire. He ruled the Persian Empire from 464 to 424 BC. Okay. And so clearly the incident that is reported here in these verses took place long after the temple was complete. It really involved the attempt by the enemies of Israel to halt the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So they are saying, hey, look at these guys have come fine. They rebuild the city now. They are rebuilding the walls. Remember, walls were very important in those days. They were the ones that gave the protection. So they are saying now they are becoming a fortified city. We gave them permission for all this. Now they are taking things over. They are going one step beyond. So they are saying in verse 13, look at this is going to have dangerous consequences, damaging consequences. So what are they saying will be the consequence? Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Look at it. Give them permission. They have been rebuilding the walls. They have been rebuilding everything. They are going to become a fortified city. Once it is rebuilt, the walls are finished. What will happen? They will stop paying you any money. No more taxes that will come to you. Then what will happen to you? You thought, you know, it is okay. No, no. They are going to become a superpower. They will take over. And then in verse 14, they say, hey, look, we are not bothered about money coming into you. He says, now, because we are in the service of the palace and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore, we have sent and informed the king. What are they really saying? They're saying, okay, if you are not really wondering about money not coming to you, hey, make sure. Your name is going to be at stake. You may be the laughing stock of the people because they would have become so powerful, they will overthrow you. Okay. And then, you know, they, if in case that also has not sunk in, he, they drill it even more further in verse 16. It says, We inform the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Okay. So he says, if you're still not bothered, let me tell you, one day will come, you know, when these guys will become independent, when these guys will have nothing to do with you, you know, this would be your loss. So they put it in a step by step, step by step, step by step. 
And for all these years in between, for those 80 years, you know, that the uh, walls have been, you know, lying in ruins, you know, they have been constantly working on it, working on it, working on it, so that the walls will never really get rebuilt, okay. With all these lies, basically, okay, with all these lies. And unfortunately, there was this king who really believed that lies. That's what we find in verses 17 onwards, the response of King Artaxerxes, the response of the king. <coughs> now, he starts off with a very nice you know, introduction. In verse 17, he says, peace, the document which is sent to me has been translated you know, and the decree has been issued by me. And then what does he say? A search was made and it has been discovered, verses 19 and 20, it has been discovered that the city has risen up against the kings in past days, that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it, that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, and that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. What did this king do? He just said, I want to verify. What did he verify? Did he verify the truth? You know? What the lies has been told to them, he just picks up those information, you know, from the archives, which will fit into that and say, hey, I agree with that. I agree with that. You have been telling me that these guys are becoming powerful. I looked at their history. They had kings who were very powerful, like King David, maybe, you know, they said they are very powerful. And they have looked at, you know, past history and seen these lies. And instead of looking at the truth, to say, hey, these are just lies these guys are cooking up. They just pick up from what they want to pick up from there and believe the lie. Now, that's what basically heresy is all about. The word heresy, heretic, comes from pick and choose. Okay, You pick up that which you want to hear. You pick up that side of the doctrine which appeals to you. And you just accept it. You don't believe the truth. You believe the lie. You pick and choose and you have your own pet verses, if you were to say, to believe what you are receiving from these people. So after doing that, you know, he sends out a work order to say stop work. Verse 21 says, so now issue a decree to make these men stop work <coughs> that the city may not be rebuilt. Now, praise God. There's no full stop there. Okay? If there was a full stop there, that's the end. You know, because the king has decreed the city will not be rebuilt. But God was in charge. Remember right from the first chapter, we have been saying it's God at the center. If God put it into the heart of Cyrus to send the people back, it is God who is putting into this opposition guy, Artaxerxes, to make it as law. <laughs> to say that the city will not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Until is issued by me. So this final clause left the door open for the king to change his mind. And that is what we read in Nehemiah chapter 2. <coughs> Definitely. Providential. It was God ordained. It was God ordained. So here again is an important aspect. Whatever opposition you may be going through, God is in charge. He has a plan. He will work out the plan. 
you may look at the letter and say, oh, the decree has been sent that, you know, work has to stop, okay. So the next verse says, you know, then thus the work on the house of God, you know, came to a standstill, okay. I may look at that verse and say, okay, because the decree was passed, so we can't do anything about it, okay. Full stop. No, no. It says, until, until, you know, that decree could be changed. God is always at work. So, if you notice in verse 24, it's a resumption, not of from verse 23, you know, but a resumption of verse 5. So, between verses 6 to 23, he just gives a little glimpse into the future to say, hey, opposition is going to continue. The work was stopped here, work was also stopped later on. Now, remember, this is not uh, like a, a, a daily news coming in. This is a history that has been recorded, okay? So, when the history is being recorded, you know, the writer has not put it in a chronological sequence, but just to emphasize this truth to say, opposition continued for a long, long time, for a long, long time, okay? And that is the reason that is mentioned over there, okay? So, that, be careful surprised by opposition. Be willing, like Zerubbabel and the others. Watch out for people who claim to be Christians, but who don't believe in the same Jesus. Now, even in, in Paul's time, in other people who preached another Jesus, today more so, there are so many people who are preaching another Jesus. If we want our lives to be built up, we must be careful, watchful, of the enemy and make sure we know the word of God thoroughly well so that we don't fall into his strategies, get discouraged, compromise and drop out. My prayer is that as we look at some practical lessons from this uh, chapter this evening, it would encourage our hearts to stand firm. Number one, our spiritual enemy will vigorously oppose every attempt at spiritual advance. This is a truth, you know. The scripture is very clear. If you are facing no opposition, you know, chances are you have already compromised, <laughs> okay. If a person, you know, has no opposition, problem, something is wrong somewhere. Because if you are going to press on, there is definitely going to be the opposing group that will be there, trying to prevent you from not reaching the mark. And the enemy is definitely has his bag of tricks. In 2 Corinthians 11.14, Paul spoke about the devil as the ability to transform himself into an angel of light. He poses as something good when he is extremely evil. The scripture is very clear. Be careful. Be careful. He appears as an angel of light. You may think this is good. It is not good. In Revelation 12.10, the devil is spoken of as the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the brethren, constantly saying, hey, God doesn't love you. God, you, know, you have done this. He won't forgive you, accusing you of what you have done. Or he will deceive you. Revelation 12.19 speaks about it. John 8.44, Jesus said, the devil is the father of lies, the father of lies. So, he has cause of you know, all these you know, evil tricks in his bag to trap the believer. Now, if you are aware of it, if you are aware of Satan's strategy, if you are aware of the weapons that he uses, 
then when you're attacked, you know, hey, okay, that is his strategy. You know, I don't have to worry about it because I have the armor of God. <laughs> the enemy's most dangerous trick is to lure us into compromise under the guise of cooperation. To lure us into compromise under the guise of you know, cooperation. The problem of these people, especially the Samaritans, was syncretism. We are all worshipping the same God. And a lot of people today have that thing in Christianity. Then we have the ecumenical thing. Okay, we are all, all different, different things. We are all the same God, same worship. But is it really true if you look at the doctrines of all these individuals who claim to worship the same Jesus? Their salvation is not based on you know, uh, the grace of God and death of Jesus. A lot of people have their salvation based on their works. You know? Oh, I was baptized, I was confirmed, so I am saved. You know? And there's so much of this compromise, you know. And if you're not careful, under the guise of cooperation, after all, we are worshipping the same God, so let's work together. The chances are over a period of time, you would also agree with whatever they are saying, and you will go away from the truth. So there are great pressures today to compromise the gospel by joining with those who claim to believe it, but who add things that totally destroy the grace of God. It is a very subtle approach, but we need to be careful. Secondly, the enemy often uses the tool of discouragement, the tool of discouragement. He, is, he whispers to us, what you are doing won't make any difference in this world. Okay, you say you want to work for God, you say you want to be involved in his ministry, you say you want to live a holy life so that he can impact other lives, what impact it's going to make? And Satan may also give you that discouragement, say, will it really make any difference in eternity? Some people will say, hey, look, after all, you'll get to heaven, isn't it? You know? So what, so what, you know, if you're not going to get rewards? So what, you know? As long as you get in, that's all that's important. So don't break your head in trying to live the holy life. And Satan can come up with all these wrong thoughts, you know, you know, which are not really the truth. So we must be careful that we don't give in to this discouragement and this falsehood that Satan puts into our minds okay so when he whispers to us and you know, i says hey it's not going to make a difference and you know, i in the world you know just a drop in the ocean don't listen to him you know be a person who is willing to say okay even if it's a drop okay i want to follow what god wants me to do impact or no impact responsibility is his i want to obey in what god has called me to do thirdly the enemy often uses fear to follow discouragement. When you are discouraged, fear can easily creep in. Discouragement quickly turns into many fears about the future. And especially during this last couple of years, there have been so many people who have been discouraged and that has led to fears about the future. They are so unsure, so afraid constantly. Okay, You don't have to be afraid of the future if you know the God who is in charge of the future, isn't it? But Satan comes and puts these questions, thoughts into our minds, which will make a person afraid. Fourthly, the enemy uses misinformation and false accusations to oppose and undermine godly leaders. Godly leaders. If you notice today, 
it is so easy to defame a person by sending an email, by putting it online. And there are so many people who do that. They wash dirty linen in public, as it were. You know? And you know, they think, you know, oh, I'm really taking a stand. But what are they really doing? You know, they have not verified stuff. They just put it up. They are convinced it is the truth. But that's not how we deal with it, isn't it? The scripture tells us if somebody is caught in fault, you sit down with that person, talk things over. You don't put it on public. And a lot of individuals, especially when it comes to Christian leaders, have this uh, problem of people who are not satisfied, not happy with their leadership, want to pull them down. And they are an easy prey to Satan who uses them to malign them so that they would get discouraged and drop out of Christianity. And a lot of people today in Christian ministry drop out or go through so much of frustration and depression because of all these wrong accusations that people say against them. Be careful. That's a strategy. Forewarned is forearmed. Fifthly, if need be, the enemy will form coalitions to overwhelm the godly by sheer force of numbers. Sheer force of numbers. If you notice in this passage, you know, it is a few people, then they gather more people together, then they write a letter to the king, and then the king also comes under that in our group. They form these coalitions, and that is how oftentimes you know, the splits take place, isn't it? There will be one individual, a disgruntled person who was not given what he expected you know, from the leader. So he gathers a few other people. You know. One is discouraged, gathers a few more people, make them discouraged, and then they form that rebellion. Remember, even in the, uh, when it came to Moses, you had the Korah's rebellion, and Dothan and Abiram, they joined together, and 250 people came together to accuse. Similar thing happens even today. Remember, all this is work of the uh, devil. And who is he targeting? He is targeting believers in the fellowship to pull down somebody else. Can Satan do that? Yes, if a person is not really careful. Sixthly, at times the enemy will use government edicts and sheer force <laughs> to block our spiritual advance. Bring in a law. And the government, if you notice, has already brought different, different laws, isn't it? When the scripture tells us, I hate divorce, says the Lord, government brings a law and says, hey, divorce is okay, as long as two people are mutually agreed, you know, no problem. You know, government has said it, so you say it's okay. Bible says nothing doing. Or you speak about, you know, killing. You know, speak, people today speak about mercy killing. People speak about abortion. They say these are all legalized. Government has brought an edict, so it's okay. No, no, that's not okay. What the Bible says has to be followed. Often the government comes up with the law to speak about how we should not be worshipping God. When government puts restrictions, then what do we do? The enemy can use all these laws either to you know, slow us down in our walk with God ought to take us away from him and live a compromised life by saying, hey, if the government says it's okay, it's okay. No, no, it's not a question of what the government says. It is what God's word says. Number seven, the enemy does not give up in his opposition to our spiritual progress. The enemy does not give up in his opposition. Now, if you notice, we have learned this evening from all this history in terms of the number of years that have gone by in this one chapter. 
to teach us this important lesson that opposition will continue. So if in case you signed up for the Christian faith thinking that your life will be a bed of roses, good news today, it is not going to be, okay? Actually problems, opposition would start when you're serious in your walk with God. But the assurance, the assurance is God is going to be there with you. The scripture says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. The Lord does not say you will have no valley of the shadow of death. You will have no opposition. He says, no, you will walk, but I'm going to be there with you. So if we view life with that perspective, that life is not going to be easy. Life will have problems. Life will have oppositions. And I'm trying to slow down my Christian walk, but I'm not going to yield to that then you're going to stand firm. But if you thought, you know, now that I'm a believer, things are going to be easy and you bump into a problem, you know, opposition comes in, then you may say, what's the point of following? So be careful. This chapter has really taught us this evening that opposition will continue for long periods. Now, there are many wrong ways to respond to the enemy's attacks, okay? There are wrong ways. You look at the right ways and the wrong ways. First, the wrong way. The wrong way, number one, is to give up your spiritual goals and go back to your old way of life. To give up your spiritual goals. Now, now people start off well, but what happens? They get hurt. They get hurt maybe by fellow believers. They get hurt you know, with their wrong expectations. So they drop out. So they drop out. They expected someone to appreciate them for what they were doing. They didn't get that appreciation. So they say, forget it. You know. Some of them may still attend church occasionally. Some of them may still attend church and fellowship regularly. But some people also drop out totally. This is an unattainable goal, you know. After all, I have to compromise if I have to live in this world. No, no, no. Don't compromise. Don't give up on your goals and go back to your way of life. Secondly, some individuals settle for second best spiritually. Second best spiritually. Some of the Jews may have thought, well, at least we are out of Babylon and back in land. So if we don't have a temple, if we don't have the walls around, it's okay. And as long as we are in the land, you know, isn't that what really makes the difference? You know? It's like people will say, you know, as long as I'm going to get to heaven, isn't that what really matters? You know? No, no, no. Make sure that you're living a life that is pleasing to God. Genuine worship of God is very, very important. Some Christians try to make a new beginning, but the enemy attacks, so they back off and decide to settle into a mediocre spiritual experience. Look back into your life. From the time you came to know Christ, I'm sure that was a spurt you know, in terms of your desire to do what God expected you to do, to live a life of obedience. But as time went by, have you become complacent, mediocre? Has the fire grown dim? The fire may not have gone out, but the fire is not burning blight, you know, brightly. And you have settled down for it. We have said, hey, this is what life is all about. Don't settle for the second best. You know. Press on to what God has in store. Thirdly, you know, another uh, pattern is to blame God or God's leaders for not doing what you think they should have done. You know. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, 
Moses is a classic example of all the people constantly murmuring and murmuring and murmuring and blaming him. Okay, and says, why did you bring us over here just so that we could die? You know, or maybe here also, you know, some of these guys would have murmured against you know, Zerubbabel and the leaders and say, hey, things were going okay. You know, we had no problems before this. You know project started, before this work started, we are having a good life. We came back from you know, Babylon, we were settling down over here. It is only because of your desire now all these things are happening. So put the blame on God or put the blame on the leaders. Be careful. It is easy to grumble against God or to the leaders, you know, but make sure that we are praying together, not blaming one another, but willing to work together for the cause that God has given to us. Fourthly. <coughs> People, some people conclude that it must not be God's time and that when he wants it done, it will get done. Now, this may sound very spiritual, you know, but this is actually laziness. You know, it is actually laziness. You do not want to stand the opposition. You don't want to face the opposition. So you say, what will be, will be. When God decides it will happen, so I'm not going to do anything about it. You know, it is like a a super belief in the sovereignty of God that I don't do anything. If he wants me to move from here to here, he will take me and put me there. So I don't have to do anything. You know? So just take it light, take it lightly. You know? This is not God's time. Now that's also a, a wrong way to respond. And Satan is definitely happy. If you are not moving forward, if you are stagnant or if you are going back, Satan is definitely happy. But what is the biblical strategy for overcoming the enemy's tactics. What is the biblical strategy? Number one, know the enemy. Know the enemy. Second Corinthians 2.11 says, you know, so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We are not ignorant of his schemes. The Bible has given us enough evidence of his schemes. Right from the book of Genesis, when you know, sin first entered into the world, you know, the Bible gives us all these static and other tactics, strategy of how Satan tries to trip us. Whether when Jesus came down to earth and how Satan tempted, or when you look at all the temptations that other individuals in the scriptures faced, all this when we study, we get to know the enemy and we are prepared to stand firm and fight when he strikes. Secondly, resist the enemy. Resist the enemy. James 4, 7 tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay, simple thing. Okay, There's no special prayers to be done here. You know, it says, resist the devil and he will flee. But the interesting part is, before you resist the devil, the third one is, submit and draw near to God. Okay, James 4, 7, the first part of it says, Submit, therefore, to God, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. In other words, God is saying, even in the book of Ephesians, in the uh, wearing the whole armor of God, it says, after having done all, to stand firm. You know? So he is the one who gives us the strength. We know the strategy. We know this is his tactic. So when he attacks, you, know, you stand firm on the victory that God has already given to us. We are not sitting and fighting. We are standing firm on the victory. And we are then drawing on the strength of the finished work of Christ. 
If Satan comes and says, you have a lot of power now, we call his shots and say, you have no power, you're a liar, you have been defeated. So the more we understand the truth of God's word and stand firm, we overcome. And finally, the fourth one is we persevere in the face of opposition. It is a lifelong battle. It is a lifelong battle. And we must be individuals who are not giving up, not giving up. As the years go by, <laughs> life can become more tough. As the years go by, opposition can become stronger. But our heart's cry should be, Lord, let me finish well. Let me be an individual who will stand firm. Let me be an individual who will not compromise. Let me be an individual who, when I finish the race that you have given to me, I can say, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. couple of application questions this evening. Number one, how can we know when cooperation with unsaved religious people crosses the line into spiritual compromise? How can we know? Where do we draw the line between cooperating with others for things together and where do we draw the line and say so much and not further than this? What is the line that we have to draw? Number two, if Satan is going to oppose any attempts at spiritual advance that we make, why should we even try? No. This is a lazy attitude. This is the attitude that says, if you're going to have opposition, why do anything at all? You know, do nothing. Yeah. Someone shares something that you think may be a half truth or a false accusation against someone else. What should you say? Yeah, if somebody comes and shares with you, which is not the truth, half truth. You know, or it could be a total wrong, false accusation that they have cooked up. What should you say to that person and how should you respond? And number four, how can we know whether a hindrance to a spiritual advance is due to the enemy or not being God's timing right now? How do we know the difference, whether it's an opposition or whether it is God shutting the door? And my prayer is, as we have looked into this chapter and God has spoken to our hearts, we will be aware of the strategy of Satan. But more important than being aware of that, we would know the truth. We will find the discernment that God gives to us. So, then the, so that in the midst of any opposition, we would continue to build our spiritual lives. We would never give up. We would never give up, but still keep pressing on. Let's bow our heads in prayer together.